Well, it's a joy and a privilege to welcome you today to our Sunday School lesson for Graceway Baptist Church. This is the one we're presenting on December the 12th, and this year is going to be over before we know it. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you for all of your prayers for me. This is the uh, first time I'm recording, actually, uh, after the surgery and uh, feeling pretty good and ready to get after it. So thank you for all of that. The Lord's really, really been good. And uh, when we are talking about things like we have this week and last week about the Lord's Supper, that really is getting us ready for our uh, candlelight Lord's Supper that'll be coming up here very shortly. And uh, that's just one of the things we just want to make sure that we do right. And as we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ incarnate, born in a manger for us, we don't ever want to divorce that or separate that from his atoning work on the cross, uh, or it means nothing. So thank you for your diligence to uh, study these kind of things, and hopefully it's encouraging to you. And also want to remind you, and uh, teachers, if you will help me out on this, to uh, remind people to give to the staff love offering. I don't take this up for myself. Uh, I take it up so that I can uh, give on behalf of the church to people who uh, work and serve so diligently and faithfully. So help us promote that. And uh, Merry Christmas to you. I hope you enjoy the season and it brings a lot of delight and joy to you and to your family. Well, we are in the New City Catechism. We're just about finished with it. I think we have another month after this, and then uh, we'll move on to something else. But the question today is, does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? Now, um, for most of you who are listening to this, you would look at that and say, well, of course not. Of course not. And yet, one of the things we need to realize is this is more controversial. This is uh, something that more people think than we would like to admit, maybe even in our church. There are a lot of people who kind of feel like it's Jesus and then every little thing that I can do to add to what Jesus did is just going to help me across the finish line. I was watching a football game the other day and they handed the ball off to a running back, and he was right on the goal line and uh, trying to push through. And the uh, other players on the team and some that were on the line got behind the running back, and they pushed him over the goal line. Uh, that was kind of cool in a football game. But that is not the way it works when we think about the gospel. Sometimes people had the idea, and there are all kinds of denominations and theologians and preachers and average church members who kind of feel this way, that Jesus did his part, and now I help him out, and I finish the work by whatever I do, that I'm the push to get over the goal line, which, as Paul said, makes the cross of Christ of no effect. Read the book of Galatians sometimes. I've got members of my family who say that they believe in Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, but they also believe that they have to worship on Saturday, their Seventh-day Adventist, and they have to eat a special Old Testament-type diet in order to actually make it into heaven. So Jesus 
is the one that does most of the heavy lifting, but I'm the one that through my life and righteousness, quote unquote, I kind of push it across the goal line. Some people believe that baptism does this. Jesus did his part. Now I do my part. What do I do? I confess my faith in Christ, then go through the waters of baptism. And boy, that's what gets me across the finish line. Again, Paul says that makes the cross of Christ of no effect. Some people even feel that way about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper just kind of gives me the little extra oomph that I need to make it into heaven. Now, in Paul's day and what they dealt with in uh, Galatia, in Galatia and the churches there, that was a regional book, um, they thought that maybe circumcision did it, that you got saved and that was good, but without circumcision, you, you just weren't going to quite make it. If you watched OSU's game against Baylor in the Big 12 championship, I mean, we missed winning that game by a matter of inches. If uh, Jackson could have only, maybe, uh, maybe he took a dive too soon or his angle wasn't right. But I mean, when he stretched out the ball, it was less than four or five inches from the goal line. And there are some people who feel like that in the Christian life, that if you don't have these little add-ons, you're going to get close, but as they used to say, no cigar. No idea why they would say that, but you know what it means. Just short, just not quite getting there. And I'm afraid that there are a lot of people who put more of their trust in what they do than what Christ does. It's as if Jesus is just almost nearly, but not quite hardly enough for us to be saved. Now, we've got to understand that true Christianity, that biblical theology teaches that it all rests upon Christ and his work upon the cross. All of it does. So they answer the question here properly. No, Christ died once for all. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal celebrating Christ's atoning work as it is also a means of strengthening our faith as we look to him, there's the key, look to him, and a foretaste of the future feast. And uh, that would be the marriage supper of the Lamb. But those who take part with unrepentant hearts eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, uh, maybe we ought to spend a little time talking about that. The Lord's Supper is to point us to Christ. We'll cover that in just a little bit and remind us of what he did and the fullness and completeness of what he did for us. It's not about what we do. It's not about a little piece of bread and a little cup of grape juice. It's about the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It mentions here it's a covenant meal because Christ himself said, I'm making a new covenant, a new agreement with you, but it's not based upon you. It's based upon me and the shedding of my blood. And we've got to rest completely and totally in what he has done for us. It mentions here that um, we celebrate. Now, while the Lord's Supper kind of has a 
a sobriety, a solemnity to it. At the same time, we don't want to lose the joy of thinking that our Lord loved us so much, was so kind and gracious as to come to earth, which we celebrate at Christmas, and then to live a perfect life on our behalf because he was doing what we could never do for ourselves, right? And then to die on the cross as the unblemished lamb of God, the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins, to take the wrath of God upon himself, to actually physically die while he was on the cross, and then be raised from the dead after three days to show that he is the conqueror and that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father, then going and ascending to heaven after 40 days where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And to get it into our minds and into our hearts that, I'll I'll put this on me, that I have absolutely zero worthiness for salvation. And I'm just like everybody else, like you and everybody that has ever lived. There is nothing good in me. Paul said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Now that means that I'm blemished, that everything I do is tainted by sin if it's done in the power of the flesh, in the strength of the flesh, or by my own self-righteousness. So um, that's why the hymn writer says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly lean on Jesus' name. Well, that's the way it's got to be. And I'm afraid that there are some people who trust in the fact that they felt something or that they cried or that they reformed themselves in some way or that somebody else said, you must be saved because I can sense the Spirit of God in you, which is not a biblical thing at all. There's all kinds of stuff that we add to the gospel that leads some people, maybe even you, to believe that I'm saved. Well, of course it was Jesus, but but I really have assurance because of what I've done. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, crying, feeling good, or something like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with having your life changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a part of it. But that's not what saves you. That is a result of being saved. There's nothing wrong with baptism or the Lord's Supper. They're scriptural. They're commands of Christ. But we don't take them in order to get saved or to help our salvation or to push us across the line. We take them and we observe them because we are and we have been saved. You may have felt something, you may have cried, you may um, have immense joy in your life because of knowing Jesus, and that is a wonderful thing. Don't, Don't think that I'm putting any of that down at all. That's a wonderful thing, but those things don't prove salvation. Those things are a result of salvation. And depending on you and your personality, you may be a real expressive person and you may cry easily or shout easily or something like that. And you feel things very deeply. That's fine. But never let that be the basis or the confirmation of your salvation. It always has to go back to Jesus and Jesus alone. The scripture that they have for us here is 
First Peter chapter um, three, verse 18. They just give us part of it. We'll look at it a little more completely, hopefully. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And here's a purpose clause that he might bring us to God. So Peter makes a strong statement here that the suffering of Christ is not an over and over and over and over thing. It's not an ongoing thing. Now, if you have any uh, Roman Catholic friends and, um, you know, their theology and, and their teaching is that when they celebrate the Eucharist, the Mass, and uh, the Lord's Supper, as we would call it specifically, that as the priest prays for that, it transforms into the, listen to this, literal body and blood of Christ. In other words, there is this um, idea that every time you go to Mass, you receive a fresh and new sacrifice and application of the body and the blood of Christ. Okay? Well, they base that on the fact that when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body. He took the cup and said, this is my blood that is shed for you. And they say he meant that. That was a literal statement. And they failed to uh, kind of consider the fact that Jesus was saying that before he ever went to the cross. That obviously means it had to be symbolic because he hadn't offered his body and hadn't offered his blood yet. And while he's standing there physically in his humanity, are you telling me that when he prayed that prayer, that piece of bread that they all ate from literally became his body? No, his body was right there. And again, had not been offered. It was a memorial. It is a reminder to us of what Christ has done. And how many times does he suffer? How many times is the sacrifice offered? Peter settles it right here. For Christ also suffered once, once for sins. And so we don't want to get into that of thinking that it's over and over and over and over like uh, some do. And notice the next phrase says the righteous for the unrighteous. That gives us the idea he was a substitute, just like the lamb was a substitute at the first Passover that we read about in Exodus quite a while back. The lamb was the one that was a substitute. And because he died, the firstborn in the Israeli households did not have to die. The lamb died for them. And Christ is the one who died for us in our place. And Peter's astonishment here is that the holy, righteous, powerful creator God would give himself for treasonous, wretched sinners like us. Just an amazing thing if you really contemplate that. The righteous for the unrighteous. And why did that have to happen that he might bring us to God? And let's just be clear, because that is the only way to God. Okay? So we're going to apply this and we're going to take this phrase by phrase and apply it to the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper is centered on Christ. For Christ are the first two words in the verse that we just read. And when you think about the Lord's Supper, we uh, sometimes tend to think about ourselves. And we're actually supposed to be thinking about Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. 
No one ever said, do this in remembrance of your good works. Do this in remembrance of your piety. Do this in remembrance of your righteousness. That's not in there at all, not mentioned. Why? Because your righteousness is not what saves you, and your righteousness does not keep you saved, and your righteousness is not what gives you that extra push to finish the, uh, to go across the goal to go to heaven. In fact, when we read the Bible, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body. I mean, we ought to come to attention and uh, be very reverent and honoring of the Lord Jesus Christ every time his name is mentioned or he is proclaimed because he is the head of the body. He's the boss, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. In other words, all of us that are saved, we get in line behind him. He outranks us is what it means to be the firstborn. In those days, to be the firstborn carried special rights and privileges. The majority of the inheritance went to the firstborn, and he was the boss of the family. And at the death of the father, he would become the patriarch one day. Well, of course, in terms of Christ, the father is never going to die. But Paul makes it very clear, Christ is the one who is the firstborn from the dead. He leads us He's the captain of our salvation, the trailblazer, and he outranks us, and he always will, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, which would include the Lord's Supper, he might be preeminent. And so, yes, 1 Corinthians 11 says we're to examine ourselves. But that examination, some people have wrongly made it to where I look to myself and see if I'm worthy to take the Lord's Supper. That is an abject impossibility. You can never be worthy in and of yourself. In fact, the examination is to show and remind you of your unworthiness so that you can do what? Make Christ preeminent and take the supper because of Jesus' worthiness. You see, it's the focus. It's not about us. It's all about him. So, we don't want this to become a time where we just think about ourselves, where we're focused upon ourselves. I'm performing well. I'm worthy to take the supper. That exalts us and lifts us up into pride. This is the time to make us think about our inadequacy and his sufficiency, his complete sufficiency. It's a time to see how only Christ is worthy and has died to make us acceptable to the Father. And that's the only way that it happens. And so every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a fresh reminder of the gospel. It's a fresh reminder of what Christ has done for us. It's a fresh reminder of what our salvation really is. And uh, it's certainly not anything that we've accomplished, is it? And we know that. But we have to be reminded and we have to think that way and we have to renew that and that's what we do every time we take this covenant meal called the Lord's Supper. Secondly, the Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's sufficiency. Uh, Peter tells us he also suffered once for sins. And the idea of suffering once for sins is not the Lord saying, I gave it all I could and it was the best I could do. Now help me out. It's saying that what Christ did in just one offering of himself 
is enough to save everybody who will put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity. Praise his name. Back to the book of Colossians, Colossians 1:21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, here's another purpose clause, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what is it that makes me holy, blameless, without reproach and gets me before the Father? It's what we read in verse 21 of Colossians 1. It's this one who took me when I was alienated, when I was hostile in mind, I'll do it my way, I'll do it myself, I'm good enough just the way that I am, and uh, refuting what God says, I'm living in evil deeds. And what has he done? He has reconciled me and you to the Lord. And how did he do that? In the body of his flesh by his death. And that's what makes us presentable to God. You know, when you were a kid, you uh, might have been having company and your mom says, you need to get into that bathroom right now and wash your face and comb your hair and make yourself look presentable. And we kind of have this idea that we make ourselves presentable. And the sad thing is a lot of people have that idea that I've got to make myself presentable to God. And the truth of the matter is Christ has already done that for you and he did it through his death. So when we hold that little piece of bread and we're reminded of the body of Christ and we hold the cup that reminds us of the blood of Christ, what happened to make us acceptable to God? The body was broken and because of that, the blood was shed and that's what did it and that's what makes us acceptable. So it's not by works, it's not even by Christian rituals or anything like that at all, or charitable deeds, or giving, or compassion. Not by that at all. It's not by knowledge of doctrine. Some people think they go to heaven because they know things. It's a whole lot more than just knowing some things. It's not by even miracles. Many will say to me on that day, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Lord, did we not prophesy, cast out demons, and do many mighty works in your name? And he's going to tell them, depart from me, workers of iniquity. Miracles don't save you. The supernatural doesn't save you. There's only one thing. It's only by the sacrifice of Christ. He paid for our sins. He took the wrath that we deserved and would spend an eternity in hell paying for it. And he brought us into his family. He gave us his spirit to live within us. And he gives us his armor and uh, what is it that, we, that it all kind of comes together in? The reformers would say in Latin, solus Christus, it's only Jesus, only Jesus. Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? And the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are and how important it is that we are. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper shows our inadequacy. I mean, again, not to be redundant, but to emphasize the point, <clears throat> every time you examine yourself, you're going to come up lacking. You're going to find that you, you never pray enough. You never give enough. 
You never know enough of the Bible. You're never holy enough. I mean, we're all inadequate in and of ourselves. And when I examine myself at the Lord's Supper, I always see that I am still a sinner who falls short. Think about that goal line thing we talked about, who falls short of the glory of God. And nothing we can do will push us across the goal or get us to where we are in and where we make it. Only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Peter tells us it's the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, until you can get that, you don't have salvation. It's not the unrighteous doing more good deeds or better deeds or improving themselves somehow. It's by perfection giving itself for the imperfect. It's for, by the accepted one giving his life for the unaccepted ones. It's by the one who is united to the Father giving his life for those who are alienated and hostile to the Father. That's the only way that we can be saved. And so there is none good but God, the rich young ruler said, and Jesus commended him. He said, you've spoken well because that was a true statement. And we need to remember that. We forget that sometimes. And our righteous deeds, all they can do for us is to make us prideful and feel better about ourselves than we ought to think and self-righteous like the Pharisees. They are as filthy rags, the book of Isaiah says, and they are rejected by God. If I were to, I used to work at Ken's Pizza. If I were to make you a pizza and I use the best dough, the freshest and the best sauce, and then I put the cheese on there, and I mean, it was wonderful. And then I put the best pepperonis and peppers and onions and Canadian bacon and whatever it is you like on that. All of it is good. And then I put poisonous mushrooms on it and then baked that pizza. Would you eat it? Even if you could pick the mushrooms off, the juice from the mushrooms in the oven would have permeated the whole thing. You wouldn't accept that and you wouldn't eat it. In our lives, when we offer them to God, even the very best of our lives, where everything really looks good, smells good, like the pizza, God can see through all of it and see that it is tainted and see that it is poison to us. It's rejected by God. And so Jesus gives his righteousness to repentant sinners. And it's by grace alone and it's through faith alone. And you actually, if you're born again, have the righteousness of Christ himself. That's not being arrogant. That is not taking on something that doesn't belong to you. That's what the Bible says. Christ gives you his righteousness in exchange for your sin. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, and we are all, we are all like a leaf, and uh, our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We have no standing before God. This morning, um, Sammy and I were trying to clean up some dead leaves all around our uh, house. And so uh, we were kind of working on that. And I'm restricted on what I can do. So all I could do was hold the bag. And uh, she was picking up the leaves. And as the wind would blow through there and gust and then swirl, you would watch those leaves as you're trying to put them in the bag. They would blow them out. 
and they would blow around and they would blow from where you had swept them up. And that's what the Bible compares us to. We are filthy and polluted like a dirty garment and we have no weight or standing. None of our good deeds give us anything to stand with, no gravitas at all to stand before God. We swirl and we're blown in the wind like the leaves. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a verse all of you ought to know. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that would be an arrogant statement if I said that. But because the Bible said it, you can count on it. It is true. And that's who you are in Christ and how you stand before him. And that's why you're eternally secure in him. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. Fourthly, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our hope that he might bring us to God. You see, if your hope is anything in you or anything that you've done, you're not going to make it. But if your hope is transferred from yourself and your religion and your good deeds and transferred to Christ and what he did on the cross, that's adequate, that's sufficient, and that is our hope. He is our hope. Back to the book of Colossians, Colossians 1, uh, 18 through 20. A little bit redundant. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be be preeminent. Now listen, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through him, to reconcile to himself all things. In other words, that means everything about my life was reconciled through him. He just didn't do part of it. He did all of it to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what we're remembering when we take the Lord's Supper. That's what we're remembering at this time of year when we think about Christ putting on flesh. It's hope in his sovereign rule over his church and over his people. It's hope that he is the conqueror of sin and death and hell and the grave, not us. It's hope in the fact that he came to us and he's the one that took us and has made us acceptable or reconciled to God the Father. And it's hope that our eternal security and peace with God is through him, not us. I've always wondered for people who believe you can lose your salvation, are you still a sinner? And they'll say, well, yeah, I I still sin. Then what is the sin that causes you to lose your salvation? And they can't tell you. You know why? Because God never said anything like that. And wouldn't it make sense that if a loving heavenly father, that if his uh, salvation plan meant that we could do something to mess it up and to lose it, don't you think he would tell us? But they play this guessing game. Some sins are okay, I guess. And other sins, well, that'll kick you out and you've got to get re-saved again. And uh, that's just not possible and it doesn't even make any sense. So we think about eternal security and our hope is in what he has done. Why am I eternally secure? 
not because of me, but because of him. His sacrifice was sufficient. So understand that the Lord's Supper was never designed to cause doubt, but it was designed to remind us of Christ and to rest in him alone. Uh, Let these verses comfort your heart. John chapter 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Sounds like he was a Calvinist, doesn't it? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That means there are no circumstances present in the universe where you could be cast out or lose your salvation, in other words. Why? Here's a purpose. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I wonder what that is. Well, he tells us. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. O Christian, you were held in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, And he said that he is held in the hand of the Father and you are safe and you are secure in him because of what he has done. So when we come together for the candlelight Lord's Supper, yes, it'll be beautiful. Yes, it'll be meaningful because of the season of the year. But don't let the meaning escape you that it is about him, not us. And what he has done, he does well. God does all things well. He keeps his word, he keeps his promises, and our security is in him. Well, may the Lord bless you as you teach this lesson. And for those of you who watch these videos to keep up with Sunday school, God bless you for doing that. I'm so glad that you do. And uh, we can all be on the same page with this. And let's come together to take the Lord's Supper during this Christmas season for the glory of God rejoicing in what he has done for us. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And again, may the Lord bless you and bless you richly. Merry Christmas.